Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. My name is Matt Cahoon. I'm a writer and photographer from Hull in the UK. Best known for writing about the work of the late Mark Fisher. My first book was called Egress on Morning Melancholy of Mark Fisher. And I'm just about to publish my second book called Narcissus in Bloom, looking at how we understand narcissism in the 21st century. Make this point in your book, to be a narcissist, at least on social media, is considered to be one of the worst things a person can be. And I'd recently listened to this podcast that they were talking from a more kind of psychoanalytical, clinical understanding of narcissism, being much more nuanced, and that there's a healthy narcissism. And I think your book contributes in a sort of philosophical manner to that idea of a healthy narcissism. And yeah, there's kind of two contrasting quotes. Selfies signal a silent hope for self-transformation. But you also say selfies document little more than an uneasy stasis. So there's a sort of revealing tension in what appears to be a sort of new medium. Yeah, the size of the tension that what was trying to wrestle with in the book and trying to figure out where that, if but there is a healthier narcissism lurking underneath, I guess, the moral panic that we have around it, because there's so many books that seem to have been written that just denounce it outright. But maybe that's not so much in the selfies themselves as like a phenomenon. I feel like it's maybe more in how we understand them. And the book deals a lot with photography and photography in general has that same tension. I think it's, we use it as much to try and record and really remember things and fix things in place. But at the same time, I think we can't really we all have that sort of intuitive understanding that isn't real. And I suppose it's the maybe broader political implications of being more conscious of that and affirming it more. So that even if we do have an anxiety that makes us take selfies, the kind of realization that we can't hold on to that image that we've produced for ourselves is actually something to 
can take us beyond our own anxieties. But I guess that's also the very structure of that healthier narcissism, which yeah, may start from a place of anxiety, but can resolve itself potentially in other ways. I think from being an American, watching people, their selfies, and is just a corroboration yes. of their existence, which counts for nothing in this society. Yes. So at least you can declare that you're alive and that you are somehow a real person, even though you're a race. Then we also had two flagrant narcissists, one in your country and one in mine, who served as the president and were self-involved to the point of the utter disregard for the population that modeled some of the excesses for us. Right. Yeah, again, because you bring this up in the book and it's fascinating. You were talking from a quote from Freud, but it was that idea of being attracted to other people's narcissism that maybe we've rejected in ourselves. Perhaps the sort of Trump and the Boris Johnsons of the world, that they have a sort of pull to their characters because they are so outrageously self-interested, right? Yeah, and honest about it. I think that's the strange thing. They, both Trump and Johnson are so front about it. When people are in their sort of affection for them, if you can call it that. You say, aren't they narcissists? And so, yes, but at least it's different. One of the major trends that I think intersected in this conversation is the one that is a huge trend in therapy circles about authenticity. And what is authenticity, right? That's a, a much more complicated answer than can be said in a soundbite, but somebody flagrantly being a certain way can come across as extremely authentic. And what gets perceived as self-promotion by some looks very authentic to other people. Right. I'm not and saying it's... that one is right or one is wrong per se, but that's the contradiction that that lies the self-promotion slash authenticity slash, you know. And it appears stable as well, because that sort of idea of trying to capture something about you that is like singular. And yeah. the point being is that you have multiple selves and every time you try and capture one, at least in photography, like it eludes you. <laughs> and I think someone, having these sort of big figures that are sort of incredibly self-involved, they appear stable, almost like maybe everything else is falling apart, but you can, well, you can rely yeah. on their stability of self-interest. And they're confident in themselves. One of the things that happens as people are brought up by irrational authorities that they have to obey and they learn the lines of dominance and submission and they learn to submit from the inside, they see in times of real trouble, they see a flagrant irrational authority as someone who they have to obey like they did their irrational parents because everything is falling apart and they want to be good and good adherence to the irrational authority, like they were good kids at home. I agree entirely. That sense of authenticity seems to make, yeah, to stick with Trump and Johnson as two very obvious examples, seemingly difficult to criticize. People go back and say, look at what they were doing in the 80s and the 90s. They've always been this way and we should have seen the signs, but it doesn't really seem to pierce their armor, as it were. They've always consistently been awful. <laughs> strange how attractive that can be. I mean, I have it in my own family. I guess prior to Boris Johnson in this country, we've also got Nigel Farage, who maybe paved the way for Johnson's 
ascendancy, at least to the status of prime minister. And I remember my talk to my dad about Nigel Farage, and he was unfortunately quite a big fan of him. But those conversations were very similar. He'd always talk about knowing how his way of doing things, yeah, wasn't maybe, it'd always be, it's not correct or whatever else. But yeah, the, the, the honesty of that, the authenticity of just not trying to, yeah, be, I don't know, something else. Even, I don't know, it's very, it, it seems to be a whole different kind of value system almost. Yeah, and there's something attractive about, Harriet, you said right at the beginning, this idea of selfies being like a a collage of, to paraphrase, some kind of self-authoring. I am here and I count or I matter. And maybe you don't feel like you have that power and control elsewhere in your life. And I think these sort of prominent figures, you talk about Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, and uh, Kim Kardashian in the book as well. Yeah. But that part of their attraction is that they are self-authoring in some manner, right? That they, and the selfie is the sort of medium. It's like, it's not liberation through selfies, but it's sort of, there is an element of that, right? There's an element of affirming your existence. I think one of the reasons that people adhered to religions, which are less popular then, is they felt their insignificant little life counted somewhere to some god or other who saw them, but now they have nothing. Now they are nothing. And so they adhere to people who appear to be something, even if those people are irrational or depressing. There was the Kim Kardashian was, is an example that I find particularly interesting. Yeah. Because there's a, there doesn't seem to be much of a sadness. So maybe there is behind the scenes, but I think there's a part in the book where I briefly discuss a photo book that Kim put out that was called Selfish, that very openly plays with this this public understanding of her as just, yeah, a narcissist, but she really seems to problematize that, that she's not selfish as in self-absorbed, but selfish as in just only partially a self. And if there's, yeah, a sense of, it's not really liberation, but there's a certain kind of escape then nonetheless that there's this sort of new era of celebrity where people seem to escape something, but into their own sort of sense as a commodity almost. It's not liberatory by any means, but it's getting out of, I don't know, maybe something a bit more complex and human, escaping into reduction maybe, which is sad, I guess, from the outside, depending on how you feel about it. But it's something that, yeah, it's hard to know what Kim Kardashian feels like about that. And I doubt there's anyone around that would probably want to ask her about that in an interview. It's all about her appearance and appearing. She doesn't seem to have any other message except appearing significant and glamorous. And yet, for a lot of people, that they feel that's the best they can do. And they take selfies so that they can appear in their own mind as somebody significant. Is there also something, though, in... You make the case for this in the book, that as human beings, the quote is, we're not simply reasonable individuals of law and order, <laughs> but chaotic beings captured within structures of control. You do talk about dating apps and stuff as well. It's like sometimes you're attracted to these to individuals who are dysregulated because sure. there is an element of in being a sort of emotionally regulated human being, have you become a loser? <laughs> is have you just accepted the sort of the life as it's supposed to be? And there's something there's something that appears very generative or transgressive or just life-affirming in chaos. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can go anywhere with that. It's just an interesting 
connecting of the dots. But it's something that I looked at from going back to the, I guess the books or starts with Albrecht Dürer is sort of the first European artist anyway, to be known for producing a lot yeah. of self-portraits, but recognizing that his, his own experiences as someone who was both at the end of a certain era and the beginning of a new one, being right on the cusp of the Renaissance, that sense of that our societies are collapsing, that there's a sort of this chaotic element that's strangely attractive. But I guess that's partly the underlying impetus for rethinking narcissism now, for me anyway, is that if we recognize that this is becoming more prevalent as things collapse, then, you know, we're looking back to a previous moment where we see selfies, self-led philosophies, like you get Cartesianism, things like this, that sort of place the self as the, as the starting point for thought. Then, yeah, things are collapsing, but then what comes next? And what, and to what extent can that sense of self-concern, self-investigation and self-inquiry shape what is to come? I think a lot of people may feel, unconsciously at least, that nothing does come next that they may not have a planet, no less a future. Yes. Nothing comes next. And so you grab onto these people who seem to somehow be more alive than you because they are so flagrant and wild and energetic about their misdeeds. Most of the narcissists, especially for the men that we see in the public eye, is very energetic people. Yes. The women tend to exude more of a calmer energy. You would never look at someone like Andrew Tate and go, oh, that's a sedate man. That's a really calm man right there is his brother a little bit, but Andrew, definitely not. So there is this sense of energy that you do find in a certain kind of, and you even see it in like some of the selfies among the men, is that there is a lot more kind of energy to them that is very different than the women. Around this idea of what comes next, to flip it the other way, because you make the point that the selfie appears to be a new medium, but when you look at the history of art, and in photography, the self-portrait has existed for mm. a very long time. And is that same impulse that sort of drives people to take selfies? Is that the same impulse that initially artists had and or photographers? And I think there's some really interesting stuff in this idea of to see and to be seen. And this idea of being trapped in a particular image that either you have of yourself or that other people have of you and that that sort of drive to absolutely destroy it. Like the, you, you give the example, obviously, of the Britney Spears head shaving thing of it's an attempt to, this is my image, not yours kind of stuff. And I wondered maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that sort of history of the selfie to some degree in terms of art and photography and this idea of what comes next maybe is there's some clues in the history there's a slight discomfort i have with the sort of subtitle for the book i couldn't really think of a better one it's an alternative history of the selfie though it still explores a lot of canonical figures but there is this sense that yeah we britney spears is a very recent and public example i guess that's also that and that's partly the problem maybe in a way that we talk about narcissism in the 21st century, we immediately turn to figures like Trump and Johnson. And in a way, rightly, because they obviously have so much power and influence. But at the same time, it seems to be a kind of product of, it's a problem that eats its own tail. Of course, they dominate because that's what they want to do, that they, that the, the men take up the space. 
But you have these other examples like Britney Spears. And I guess in the book as well, I look at the different political movements. Like we have a Just Stop Oil in the UK at the moment, who are very disruptive. Lots of people criticizing them for not really winning the public over in causing traffic disruption, doing protests in art galleries, attacking artworks, things like this, th- things that people really seem to prize and value or disrupting their day to day. And then they too are described as, if not narcissistic, at least selfish, because they seem to be, yeah, they're not caring about other people's feelings so much. But then I guess it's, there's a bigger problem at stake here. You maybe feel disrupted now, wait till the further progress of the climate catastrophe. Similar thing with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's often been described as explicitly narcissistic in being self-centered in saying, we, yeah, we do matter. And that in turn being countered by another kind of narcissism of white lives matter or all lives matter. You're not that special. Stop insisting that you are. But it's a different kind of narcissism, I think, and a far more yeah generative one because it's a narcissism that's, that is self-concerned in a far more... Pr- productive and generative way, but asking for change rather than simply just, I guess, the raw power of Trump and Johnson. And I think that's something that you do see in the history of the selfie or the self-portrait in general. It often seems to be artists that are particularly concerned or at least interested in self-portraiture seem to have a real sense of indeterminacy about who they are or who they're becoming. And I think that's true of all of us, especially now, considering all the problems that we face socially. And it's, yeah, I guess there's this interest that I have in, in turning down the volume on the men so much and not necessarily taking their very loud narcissism as the only sort that we have and that it's trickled down as if we only all take selfies because of their example, when actually we have our own agency and maybe the reasons for considering why we take selfies beyond just their prevalence in the media maybe points to something else, which is, yeah, what needs to, or if not knowing what needs to change, at least knowing that a change needs to come, something has to give. And maybe it's a a certain sense of self that's necessary to change. Particularly, I guess you could put that in terms of the climate crisis, of an awareness of how we have to change our own habits in relation to maybe the unthinking consumerism or things like that. But again, there's a tension there of not wanting to just individualize everything to say that it's all down to the individual. But nevertheless, I feel like that idea of the individual is itself in crisis. So you talked about this idea of the bourgeois gaze, right? That exists with portrait painting because the people with the money were the people either hiring artists or like you said, like these portraits of artists, self-portraits were in, in some respects like business cards, right? That, that this was what right. I can do, please yeah. hire me. And then you have photography and the people with the new toys, by definition, have the resources to play with them. And in some ways, the rise of the selfie is a sort of, maybe it's a dumb term, but it's democratic sort of distribution of the tools. And yes. there, there is, a, I guess, a potential snobbery built into, yeah, finger-waving at selfie stuff. Because like you said, the, these certain figures, bourgeois figures, have been doing it for a long time. And their stuff's considered art, which is fascinating insight. Well, apologies, Harriet, I inter- interrupted you there. Oh, that's all right. I was two things. One is I really do think Black Lives Matter should be separated from the discussion because you don't just want yourself to be recognized. You want the recognition of a group that's been terribly oppressed and your identity is not with yourself, but with the group. And I do think that one of the things that's happened 
is that people are much less socially embedded than they used to be in the Middle Ages. You were known because you were the son of or the daughter of from the town of, and you had a place, maybe a crappy place, but a place in the society in which you were embedded. And people are not embedded that way now. And I think people who don't feel themselves embedded in a group and a purpose are more likely to be taking selfies. Like I noted demonstrations and in Occupy, people weren't taking pictures of themselves. I think that the thing that interests me about Black Lives Matter in this context is, though I agree with you, but it's there is the visual component that maybe Black Lives Matter protesters aren't taking pictures of themselves. But I guess part of the impetus for those protests is that you know, there are plenty of images of black oppression. I think it's that there's, it, there's this sense of the sort of trauma of Narcissus, of seeing an image of, of himself that he can't possess and can't change, so he has to transform himself. What are we not more aware of that these protests emerge from black people seeing themselves brutalized in police body camera footage, things like that. So there is an image there that's enforced. And that is, I guess, there's a sense of, a, a, yeah, a sense of that group oppression there. But then it's how that's changed the conversation. I think part of the impetus for the book, in a way, was that we're seeing that this an understanding of narcissism be negatively expanded, where people would stop talking about the narcissism of the individual and then start talking about a collective narcissism. And there's a kind of a lot of conservative commentary around and that critiques Black Lives Matter that uses that term, calls that those which is the collective narcissism. And I think that's deeply problematic. But then at the same time. I can see how it's rooted in a very kind of narcissistic experience. And I think even there's a, an example brought from um, Franz Fanon, where he talks about that in Black Skin, White Masks. He talks about seizing a kind of black narcissism that is that, that comes from the dual consciousness that he talks about, of being aware of your own sense of identity, but also the sense of identity that's put onto you and the sort of fissure between those two being that kind of politicizing trauma in a way. One other thing, I know that there's also been calls for within the African-American community where I've seen people say against like showing the negative footage in the violence because they equate it to a form of torture porn. And that there is also this sense of we need to put more because I see both African-American men and women put out like the very positive selfies of the beaming smile. And and there some of the comments being about like, hey, we're putting a positive image of ourselves. That idea of creating, being the author of stuff, right, and creating your own images. And there was a term there, finding new weapons. Yeah, if... The selfie is, is an attempt at some sort of transformation that has yet materialized. Then this idea of finding, finding new weapons or finding ways to subvert social expectations or social roles or the life that you're wish you were living opposed to the one that you are. There's some, yeah, there was some interesting stuff about what would you call it? Whatever beings, I think was the term. I'm trying to remember now if that was eye conjunction or Jody Dean's, uh, but Jody Dean talks about whatever. And I think, yeah, wh whatever being in her book, blog theory, I think it's called or something like that. But she talks about, I guess, the rise of the internet and new technology and how it shapes the self and desire. But she gets this sense of whatever from sort of two sources. I think one's Giorgio Agamben and the other is her teenage daughter who, yeah, in kind of response to parental questioning, will just give that 
very typical flippant response of whatever reminds me of the Bartleby the Scrivener from Herman Melville. He was that I would prefer not to. It's, it doesn't really seem to land either way. But in that kind of denying a certain or affirming your own indeterminacy in a way, which is such a teenage and adolescent thing to do in a very positive sense, I, I guess, because what other time do we think of when you are constructing who you are and thinking about that? And I guess there's a, an argument that I guess Jody Dean makes in a way that, you know, well, and I think maybe even slightly obvious, we don't really ever stop doing that, but we're supposed to, supposedly. And I guess that's, it actually reminded me of Liam, when you mentioned democracy, whether that's a great terminal or democratic. Mm. Actually, there was a, an interview with Judith Butler that I was watching on YouTube last night. And she's, I guess, come back in the news around a lot of the debates around gender and queer theory. And she was talking about it in those, in that sense, I guess what's made potentially causing such a moral panic in that sense is this kind of democratization of gender. It's not an either or anymore. There's a sense of people being far more self-confident and self-assured in constructing their own identities and how radical that is. And yeah, maybe not being defined either way of being kind of whatever self and just seeing where you go. And the sort of, the, the, how liberating that can be really, if you feel so constrained or your sense, your self image feels constrained and defined by forces outside of yourself. Teenagers refuse and say whatever, because they know very well what they don't want, but they don't know what they do want. And one of the ways they become independent within structures of a family is that they're not their parents, but that yes. doesn't and the idea of what they are and mm. how to get men so that they can refuse but they can't build and that whatever may come also from i don't want this but i don't stand for anything else and it's it fits with the you mentioned the stoicism angle as well that, that stoicism's most important and innately heretical operation is commitment to radically contesting the validity of that which is Basically, everything's always up for negotiation, right? Or renegotiation. And that is the seed of transformation, of, of becoming. You do really touch on the idea of the fear of transformation and the sort of ever changing self. And obviously, I'm sure listeners of the podcast know the origins of the word narcissist or narcissism, but I thought your description of the myth, and I didn't actually know that all of it, I didn't realize he turned into a daffodil. I thought he just drowned. Yeah, that's the, it, it's, I'm not sure where the, who first wrote the version just drowns in his own image, but, and it's strange because I think Ovid's version of the tale is the most famous, but that's the, but in that version, he doesn't drown. He tears himself apart and yeah, is transformed into a daffodil. The nymphs of spring then discover when they come back to, burn his body on a funeral pyre, but quite literal. Yes. It's, it's a sense of self-transformation. And I, but I guess it's the tension in those two versions of the story is that same tension with the selfie as if this, that drowning is a complete immersion in the image, but they're both sorry ends potentially, yeah. but one is far more is a, yeah, taking a sort of self-control. It's not the drowning seems to suggest a lack of that, of completely falling in as if, as if it's a kind of a mistake or a or an accident that happens through self-occupation or preoccupation. But no, in Ovid's version of the tale, it's far more deliberate. He tears his body apart and Ovid describes the bruises that result as, as like being like grapes and 
is skin like different elements of nature. And yeah, it's essentially, it's a story, it's a narcissist, the personification of spring, which seems obvious when we think of the flower that he takes its name from. But for whatever reason, that the story has changed in the sort of popular consciousness. And I think that too is very interesting of why that's happened. Yeah. I've forgotten the positive version. Because as, as far as I, my own memories as a kid, like learning about the stories of Icarus, there's a sort of element of social expectation or social control. It's like a warning, isn't it? Don't, yeah, obviously don't, yeah, don't yeah. get too far. Don't get too, obviously, quite too close to the sun. And it's authoritative in a way. It's, or it's caring, depends how you look at it. It's a sort of parental figure saying, hey, I know what I'm talking about. Don't right. hurt yourself. But there's, right. but those stories always work as a vehicle for social norms. And yeah, the narcissism thing is very much about don't fall in love with yourself, basically. But like we said earlier on, these figures have such appeal because they do clearly have such a high self-regard, at least publicly. The self-love thing is fascinating because that be, that's a huge part of conversations that exist whether that's articles or on social media, this whole idea that you've got to love yourself before you can love anyone else, which is, I guess it's a nice idea, but it's misguided, right? Because the point is that relationships are dynamics between people. They aren't about how fabulous you are and how much work the other person's also done on themselves. Maybe that's a separate conversation, but yeah, sorry. I just went down a cul-de-sac there of a dead end. So feel free to jump in, anyone. Oh yeah, I don't think it's a dead end though. I think it's that, that that's that, I don't know, it's the, maybe the more romantic part of the book too, in a way, is the, this, the talking about love as this very amorphous thing that inspires more poetry than philosophy, maybe, but there is that, it's that coupling of, of selves, maybe. I really like, like Anne Carson's first book, I think, is Eros the Bittersweet. She talks about love a lot in there, quite obviously, but all these different notions from past to present. And it's a very Deridian book. And I guess that Jack Derrida was quite an influence on the end of my own book, but his talking, the way that he talks about narcissism is very interesting. And he has this version of, it's a, the narcissism of they look at each other as if to say that it's not so much that you love someone and then you, that makes you love yourself more, but it's both. It's both recognize that process in each other that maybe, maybe, I don't know, like people talk about this ambiently of when you love someone, they make you feel like a better person, that kind of sense of love and narcissism of a kind of, you may, I like myself more when I'm with you, which is nice, I think, but it's reciprocal. And I guess that's the point. It's that there is a narcissism and immediately in, in that context of love and relationships gets a lot more complex, I think. And it's probably they're already there in Narcissus. It's the, that the original tale is that he sees, he falls in love with this image before him and he can't possess it. And he may recognize it as himself, but it's a version of himself you can't have. And I don't think it's too much of a variation to when you feel like that, when you're really in love with somebody where you maybe you love them, but you can't possess them. People try to, and the whole problem in itself, but there's that kind of jousting with self and other and the self as other and the other as self, all of those things come together in a really complex way. But for someone like Derrida, that it's all narcissism. It's just and complicated and to its own benefit, really, when you think about it that way. And I like that. On the other hand, all perception is interpretation by yourself. And so it's all self-involved and it's all skewed because you see things as you are as much as they are. Yes, absolutely. And I guess it's the, but then what, what happens when you have an awareness of that 
I guess you, 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 it's it's probably a healthy awareness to have, knowing that you can't really escape the right. self. But then, even I think even that that kind of self knowledge is it influences how you relate to other people for the better. I think coming back to that question of what comes next, when there doesn't appear to be an obvious thing of what comes next, that it just seems like it's obliteration. I think at that point. Yeah, that there's an assumption about what the human being is. And I think that through conversations on this podcast and in reading this book, it's pretty obvious that the human subject is not complete. It's this open-ended thing, provided we have a planet to live on, law. So what comes next is open-ended. It's, it could be anything. I think that's my sort of takeaway from a lot of this, that there is a continual push for some sort of transformation generationally. And that in that is how we are exactly like everything else on the planet. We have seasons, right? There is this renewal built into us. One thing that you see less of in in social media, because it's not necessarily considered the best content, it is if you think about it in other ways. But one aspect of selfies is transformation is one that you see of people, whether they're in like the recovery community or chronic illness community, where when they like post selfies of look how far I've come, I've survived this. Yeah. I'm not dead. And that to a certain degree, like those types of selfies are a little more different than like your standard, what most people think of as a self-portrait, right? Because they are less about the person and more about like the event of I am still alive. There's an irony to that too that I think is quite beautiful, but it's a selfie taken with more self-awareness. Yes. Um, and that's great. And that's, I guess, maybe what we, yeah, there's a sort of implicit argument to the book. I think that's kind of what we need. It's not to say that we should stop taking selfies and that's the way that we solve our problems, but rather if we are going to take them, have more self-awareness of what we're struggling with and what we're overcoming. And also you document in the book, the flip side of that, like someone who's dying of AIDS documenting their decline, but still quote unquote, like owning it and finding an identity in the decline as well, which was fascinating. And that, again, that speaks to us, maybe not an automatic because it clearly took effort, but that idea of I'm going to own this story, I'm going to be the author of it, and I'm going to find a new identity and meaning in this situation, which speaks to, again, a sort of healthy level of self-regard, right? I think that's something that comes through too in... I think a lot of my work does engage with grief a fair bit, but I guess there's the, there's, it's that same, maybe there's that reciprocity there between different narcissisms or different ways of your own self-awareness and how that can be imbued for other people. And I guess there's the, if you've struggled and you have that sense of not just I am here, but I am still here, but then people that have passed away and have gone and have maybe left an impact on other people, then people might say they're still here too, in a way. But it's mm. that kind of presence that I think, again, something that you can see with a lot of other protest movements, especially around social murder and things like that, like Black Lives Matter, people say their name, retaining a sense of right. presence and individual importance against the sort of the a, a, a social, what's the word? The social erasure of their importance. Yes, exactly. Yeah, erasure is a great word for it. Yeah, absolutely. And denying that 
or affirming that it's, yeah, it's not so simple. I really think this is a profound conversation that could go on forever. But <laughs> yeah. But the, the, yeah, in theory, the best case scenario is that it does, right? That we're all still here yeah. as a, the human race is able to keep trying to figure all this stuff out. Yeah. Okay, we'll wrap it up there then. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I That's think it's frame. always important to, to put these phenomena in context. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Red Yen Cola, Joseph Carreri, E, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.